Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16Z. Today's episode is with Sam Korkos, CEO and co-founder of Levels Health. Sam is joined by Vijay Pandey, general partner at A16Z BioN Health. Together, they talk about how Sam co-founded Levels, how to decide who becomes CEO if you have multiple co-founders, Levels' approach to company culture and meetings, and how Sam thinks about the complicated world of healthcare regulations. Let's get started. So, Sam, thank you so much for being on BioEats World. Good to be here. You know, a natural place to start would be is I think the viewers would love to hear about your founder story. I've always been on the engineering side, either as an IC engineer or leading engineering teams. My last company, Cardash, was a YC company focused on car repair software. And after that company, I took about a year off work and really spent a lot of time thinking about the problems that I felt needed to be solved. And I narrowed it down to a list of four or five major categories. And I think healthcare was at the top of the list. Just seeing the trajectory, especially in the United States, but really globally, and realizing that it could really use some meaningful effort. The frameworks that I use for myself was uh, inspired by Jeff Bezos's regret minimization framework. Uh, I tried you you want to lay that out? Yeah, lay that out for people? Yeah. The question that I would ask myself is, if I, if I committed five years to this project and it didn't work, would I look back at it as a complete waste of time? Or would I say that I, I tried my best on something that really mattered? And that really helped narrow down a lot of the industries that I had opportunities to join that felt really lucrative. But I realized that if they didn't make a bunch of money and if they weren't successful, I would have seen that as like five wasted years. Mm. Whereas in healthcare, it is such a, an important area that if, if it didn't work out, I would still feel good about having tried because it's such an important thing. I think at peak, I was working on 16 different projects in like very piecemeal fashion to try to understand what I wanted to focus on. And eventually I was catching up with my friend Josh and then we eventually ended up starting levels together. What was your second choice? Like, what was the runner-up in your list? Yeah, so there were several buckets. Another was, I would call it this 
broad epistemological crisis that we seem to have societally of the inability to differentiate between fact and fiction, which is actually rapidly accelerating now with these generative AI tools. Yeah, uh, this was before these things were even on the in the on the market. I've been news sober for about nine years, and part of that is losing confidence that the information that is making its way to me is it's not that it's fake it's that it is presents a version of reality that is misleading that leads yep. me to think something that is not true criminal justice reform was another category of thought so there there were a handful of these other buckets of really societal level problems that have deeply flawed incentives it was really where i ended up gravitating towards Okay, so I guess healthcare makes it a top and you, you meet Josh. Like, how did you meet Josh? I met Josh years ago. He and I have known each other for quite some time. I have a goal of staying in touch with a lot of people. And so my quarterly goal is a thousand people. I rarely hit that, but I'm usually over 500, less than a thousand. Well, and this alone is something yeah. people would be curious about. So what does staying in touch with a thousand people look like? Yeah, it means having some touch point. Like at a minimum, like I, I optimize for in-person. I have a breakfast meeting almost every day. At least I try to. I think I have one five days next week. I also host these salon dinners and other founder events. So sometimes it's larger groups. If I can't do in person, I'll try to do a call. Mm. Uh, if I can't do a call, I'll send a text or an email, just like a small touch point to check in, see how people are doing. Oh, so so in this process of touch points, then you get to Josh and just as a regular yep. touch point. Yep. Just checking in, see how things are going. I'm, I met him years before when he was at SpaceX. I met him through his father. I think it was a conference. He was at FBI and I was giving a talk on cybersecurity. And then we ended up talking for like three hours at this conference. And he said, you've got to meet my son. This was, I think, probably more than five years ago now, maybe eight years ago. And uh, so Josh and I stayed in touch. And Josh mentioned that he, he had a life-changing experience using a continuous glucose monitor, realizing that if you've met Josh, you know that he's very fit. He, yes. he he does CrossFit. He looks like a semi-pro athlete. But under the hood, he was really suffering from lethargy. Uh, he'd have these wild energy crashes in the middle of the day. He'd have to take naps under his desk. And he had never made the connection that diet could have anything to do with it. And by getting a CGM, he realized that he was eating a lot of sugar. He was eating a lot of things that were causing these wild swings that were affecting his energy levels. And so he he was really committed to building next-generation continuous glucose monitors, the, the physical hardware. And he came up to New York, and we were talking about it, and I was explaining to him why that's a terrible idea. <laughs> well, so why, why is that a terrible idea? Well, it's building a medical device in already largely commoditized space with five years to market, with huge capital requirements, with highly litigious incumbents. Mm. Like any one of those is a veto on the idea, and he had more than five of them. And so as we started working through this, and as I started using one myself and realized how much value there is, we both came to this conclusion that it's really in the contextualization, the contextualization layer, which is ultimately software, that you can add a lot of value here. The, the best analogy that I've heard is it's like getting your GPS coordinates, knowing that you're at 103 degrees longitude is 
it's useful, but what you really want to know is what street am I on? Yeah. And how do I get from this street to that street? Or better yet, how do I get from this address to that address? And how do I call a car to pick me up from here that can deliver me there? And these are the second and third order software solutions that take that raw data and contextualize them and make it useful. Yeah. So that makes sense. And that was the missing piece. Yeah, totally. Then how do you decide to make the leap then from like, this should exist to like, you should make this? There's a famous tweet by Justin Kahn that first-time founders think about product, second-time founders think about distribution. Mm -hmm. The mistakes that I made as a first-time founder is always focus on building something cool, but not validating that people will actually pay for it. Totally. The thing that caused me to really take the leap was one, it fit within a category that I cared about, that I knew I wanted to work on. The second was I immediately started trying to sell it before the product even existed. I was just getting my friends on the phone, getting anyone I knew and trying to sell them on paying money for this product. And I was shocked at how quickly people wanted this and were willing to wait six months before it was ready. And they would give me $400 by Venmo <laughs> before the product was even six months away from being ready. And that's a that was a really strong indication that people have a real problem here that needs to be solved. And so that that was what gave me the confidence that there's a real market here and we should pursue this. What are the early days at Levels like? Yeah, it was pretty scrappy. And it's one of the things that uh, I think is underappreciated is that we we had we have five co-founders. Two of us are technical software developers. Yeah, actually, let me stop you there. Five yeah. seems like a lot, right? Yeah. So long as you have very clear expectations around what the roles are and what the responsibilities are, it can work really, really well. Josh does our Friday forums, which is our mm -hmm. team all hands. And Typically, that's the CEO, but it doesn't have to be because Josh is a co-founder and he's just as he's better at doing it than I am. But we also made extremely clear from day one that while we have five co-founders, we have one CEO, right? Which means if everyone but me thinks one thing, we're going to go with what I say, because yep. that's what we have to agree to for this to work. Otherwise, it becomes a committee, which is a nightmare. But, and totally. I interrupted you, you were talking about just the diversity of backgrounds too, especially amongst your co-founders. The, the early days was very little in the way of software development. Ironically, given that we have two technical co-founders, it was really just about trying to understand customers. It was a lot of just manually calling people and just churning, like just getting customers in the door, whatever it takes. I found that a lot of people try to think about how do we scale this? But if your goal is, five customers, you don't need performance marketing. You just need phone calls. You need to like talk to people. I probably personally interviewed something in the range of five or 600 early potential customers and just manually converted them through phone calls and took a lot of notes, learned a lot about our personas. There's no shortcut to talking to customers. It's almost a trope, but yeah. it's a thing that you have to do. Something often uh, attributed to Bezos, again, is like uh, the putting the customers first, right? And so worry about your customers. Actually, don't even worry about your competition. Worry about solving some problem for your customers. Yeah, absolutely. Because there are so many learnings that we had from those conversations that just went in kind of random directions that we could have never predicted. We, we learned so much about people's backgrounds, why they want to use this product. The interesting thing was how, how little software we really built. It was about building as a scrappy a version as we could, getting it shipped, learning what we could, and then moving on. Yes. And no marketing too. Right. But so I'm curious how you think about this in the context of what seems to be a larger movement of consumer-driven healthcare. What's your view on the space more generally? 
having never worked in healthcare before, my background is on just miscellaneous software products. Yeah. I think people are coming to terms with the reality that the incentive model of healthcare is deeply misaligned with the long-term health of the people that it supposedly serves. And something that I've learned talking to insurance companies, talking to companies in the space, everyone knows that this is the situation. And one specific conversation I had with a major insurer, the people on the other side of, of the table, they they were as frustrated as I was about the situation. They don't want to be in a situation where their financial time horizons are 12 months. They want to care about population level health in the long term, but they can't. People are starting to realize that. And it's it's really empowering people to, I don't want to use, use the term taking it into their own hands, but in some ways it is. Do you think people are... Even if you empower them, how can they know what to do? Yeah, this was really a big part of our go-to-market strategy, which yeah. is you, you kind of have to know what it is you're trying to educate them about. And we knew that our education burden would be would be pretty high because metabolic health was not a term that anybody was using four years ago. Most people think of diabetes, obesity, all of these things as, as unrelated separate conditions when really... They're all just symptoms of the same underlying condition, which is metabolic dysfunction. Well, we should talk about this because yeah, most people yep. are probably familiar with diabetes as a disease, but you're talking about something even pre-disease, right? I mean, when, right. when you talk about metabolic health, what are you talking about? Yeah, in a more technical level, it's a mitochondrial health. It's the, it is the fundamental mechanism of translating food into energy. This is deep primal functionality of our cells and our bodies. It's not a huge surprise that if that is not functioning, it can have all kinds of downstream effects. One of the biggest topics within uh, the biggest categories in podcasts and in other forms of content is health mm -hmm. because people know that they're not getting what they need from their doctors. And it's because doctors typically learn something in medical school and that's what they teach. But information gets updated. Things that we thought were true 20 years ago are not true today. And it takes... There's a lot to learn as a doctor, and it's hard to stay up to date. So a lot of people are taking this this information themselves, and they're listening to the Peter Atia podcast or some of these other really great sources of information on what what do we know now, not what did we know 20 years ago. Well, and also doctors usually come in after there's some disease-like symptoms, right? For sure. Roughly speaking, the way that we describe health today in, in at least the U.S. healthcare system is you are healthy if you do not have a diagnosed disease. Yes. But at least 80%, if not more, of disease progression happens before the diagnosis. But you yeah. have a complete and utter lack of visibility into that, uh, th the majority of disease progression. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, uh, healthy doesn't mean not diseased. Yeah. A lot of what you need to do is do the education, but then also make a product that you think fits that need. And and you are starting to put these pieces together at, at that early time. How does that sort of progress? Like, how do you go from the sort of the simple version of the product and to sort of later stages? I think the biggest thing is to be comfortable with delivering something that's bad. <laughs> yeah. And not, uh, I think there's a famous, uh, I think it might be Reed Hoffman, that if you're not embarrassed by your first product launch, you've waited yeah. too long. Yeah. We we have an internal, maybe a piece of jargon in the company of shipping a pork tacos version of, of <laughs> software because 
the the first version of levels that we shipped, I might have just built it myself in a weekend and it was very, very simple. Unfortunately, it didn't work super well because any food that you logged, it would show up on the UI as pork tacos because I, I hard coded pork tacos. And <laughs> I think of our first 10 customers, eight of them didn't like it. And we refunded them and we interviewed them. We got some great feedback and then we just kept going. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. being comfortable with the reality that you're going to disappoint people, but you can take those as a learning opportunity. Some of those people ended up using levels again several months later once the product had improved. Well, one thing I, I know since we've hung out a bit is uh, you love games and game theory. How does that like impact these early days of the company? You think about problem solving through a different lens when you play different games. I, I really like strategy games. And th- there are people who like the mastery element. I'm sure you and I both have a lot of friends who are really into chess. Yep. yep. And they like that, that last 20% of mastery in an engine builder game. Mm-hmm. The trade-off is exploitation versus investment. Right. If you wait too long and you invest too much, you don't exploit enough and you lose the game. But if you don't invest enough, you also lose. And in, in every one of these games, there's some set of trade-offs that you have to make that really help understand what uh, what strategy makes the most sense. It seems like actually not even a thinly veiled metaphor for a startup, right? In the sense that also the startup game constantly changes. Like So as uh, levels grows up, how does the game change? We've hit several plateaus in company history. All of our investor updates are on the internet, so people can specifically see when those were. But we, we sort of hit the end of a particular market segment. Yeah. Our, our very early customers were 80% biohacker males. And that worked really well for a while, but there's only so many of those people. And they're only interested in it for so long. So then you have to figure out what's that next loop? What is the next feature that works for that next demographic? And for us, it was really women age 40 to 50 was a, a, a much bigger and more interesting demographic for us. And what they really liked was accountability. And uh, they also really liked aggregate metrics that could help guide decision making that the previous cohort didn't like. And so it's really about as as you learn more from your customers, as you understand what market you're in, just continually revisiting the strategy. I think we're we're currently in a pretty significant rethink of our product strategy as of, say, December, yeah. figuring out how do we make this more accessible to more people? Yeah. So you mentioned one thing, too, which is very striking about the way Levels works is that sort of this radical transparency. Your whole strategy is completely out in the open. Essentially, everything's out in the open, right? Pretty much. How can you possibly run a company like that? It has been a tremendous source of value. The downside risk that everyone talks about is like your competitors will see your strategy and then they'll copy it. Yeah, maybe they will. I, I don't know. But what, what people often miss is they don't think about the positives that come with it, which are a, a deep sense of understanding of what the strategy is. The, the number of people who join the levels who say, I've been here for two weeks and I know more about this company than I did at my last company. And I was there for five years. Yeah. But but let me just push back. Like, why not then just make it transparent to the company? But why open it beyond the company? I think part of it is that as a very tactical thing, it helps with recruiting. Mm-hmm. Every person who has joined Levels is more culturally aligned than the person prior because there's very few people, if any, join Levels without knowing what they're signing up for. Mm-hmm. There's a degree to which it really helps with cohesion and alignment around culture. 
I think other advantages are that it, if you take the most optimistic lens on this, which we've seen all the time, which is the, whenever we put a request in our investor update for support, usually we get an overwhelming number of replies. Like we'll get 40, 50, 60 people uh, offering to help because it's all public. And like the, the, the value that you can get from people who want to support, I think, I don't think it would work as well if it was not a mission-driven company because people really want this to work. People mm -hmm. want to solve this problem and feeling like, like they can contribute to that is, uh, is something that we can offer. Yeah. Another area that's somewhat radical also is a, a non-meeting first culture, right? Yeah. Async, async first. Async first, right. What led you to that approach and how's that going? Yeah. So some of it, some of it is honestly just selfish, which is that I really don't like sitting in meetings. <laughs> I wanted to build a culture that I would want to work at. Yeah. We, we took this saying from Matt Mullenweg from WordPress that uh, you should be as async as possible, but not more. Mm. And there are absolutely times when having a meeting is the best way. Like we couldn't do this podcast async. No. It would be really strange. Yeah, we could send looms at each other or something, but that would be strange, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The feedback of real time does matter in many contexts. But most of the time, we have tools now that make these things possible. We use Loom religiously. We're probably the, the biggest consumer of Loom on like a per capita basis. Okay. We, we got our year end statistics. And I think of the, we have 50 something people at the company. And I think we recorded 27,000 Looms last oh, year. What? <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's like, yeah, yeah, wait a minute, let's, let me step back from that. So that's basically 500 per person per year, right? You know, yeah, something probably. like that. Yeah, I, I'm probably in the rate of like maybe averaging 10 a day would be my guess. Yeah, yeah. And all of our meetings are recorded. Everything is async because there's, if you remove a, a set of assumptions that people have in different corporate environments, like most people come in with a default of if I'm not in the meeting live, I won't get the information that I need. And so there's this inertia where everyone feels like they have to be in the meeting all the time uh, or they're out of the loop. If you remove some of those constraints, you realize how much more freedom and flexibility you have. And I cannot tell you how many times I have been on a Zoom call that I felt like was going too slowly. And oh, I was yeah. literally looking for the 2x button. It's like, oh, <laughs> this is happening right now. I can't do that. Well, you know, something that sometimes scares people on the healthcare side is the regulatory side. Right. I'm curious how, how you sort of thought about that in terms of company building. Yeah, it was definitely something that I, I was hesitant to do anything in healthcare for that reason when I started. Yeah. But the more experience I had in it, the more I realized that it's, it's not as scary as one would expect, especially in consumer healthcare. Some of the big boogeymen that people are afraid of, things like HIPAA. Mm-hmm. It's kind of tedious, but it's really not that big a deal. It's mostly just standard data security practices. Some of it is admittedly out of date. It was written quite a long time ago, but it's not a, it's not a big deal to say HIPAA compliant. There are a lot of tools like Aptable and a bunch of other services that, a lot, that just give you the guardrails to just be HIPAA compliant from day one. In HIPAA's really the big thing is people have to consent to things. Mm -hmm. And if you get people's consent, you can do a lot. You don't have to worry about, it's not a big, scary monster like people think it is. Um, yeah, but what about like the unknown unknowns? How did you come to realize that this was this way? A lot of it was talking to people. I, okay. I have a lot of, part of the 
keeping in touch with a lot of people is that a lot of those people are health tech founders. So I talked to Eddie Siegel, one of our early uh, angel investors who was at Oscar. And I asked, like, tell me about HIPAA. He said, honestly, it's not. It's not a big deal. If you follow these basic guidelines, you're going to be fine. And then I talked to a few other people and pretty much everyone said, just read the documentation. It's not that hard. You don't have to worry about it. That was really helpful. I would also say that we we ended up hiring an in-house counsel pretty early. And that ended up being super, super helpful. So, so that's interesting because often people wait until you get to maybe a bigger scale, right? To bring yep. in in-house counsel. So how early was it? How big were you when you brought in counsel? I think it was like ballpark employee number 25. Okay. So it was relatively early. Yeah. The biggest reason was that there were so many of these legal opinions that we needed to get to really know what the path was. And outside counsel is really expensive and they do not know what you're doing, nor do they care. Yeah. The, yeah. the number of conversations that we had, I think we went through three different law firms and we would come into these conversations and it was like, even though we've been working with them for months, it's like they'd never heard of us before. And when we're trying to explain these nuanced regulatory questions that we had, we might as well just do it ourselves. Basically, is that how you feel like you then sort of secured the other potential unknown unknowns and sort of got comfort? Yeah, it helped a lot. Another thing is, depending on what, what your regulatory regime is, yeah. if it's in digital health, the digital health group of FDA actually just has really good guidance on their website. The, the first step that I took was literally just going to the FDA's website and reading like two or 300 pages of guidance. It's actually super clear and easy to understand. So um, like what type of things are there? So uh, guidance would be things like what language you can use when marketing, yeah. if your product meets certain criteria. And what those criteria are, are pretty easy to understand. They have some uh, some helpful guidance that just says if you're... If your product does these sets of things, you're under this regulatory classification. If it does these things, you're under this classification. And if you're in this classification, you can use words like this, but not like this. Mm. And your product can do these sorts of things, but not these sorts of things. And the, the boundaries are actually pretty easy to understand. I think the funny thing is, I think you're the first person I've heard actually to give that as advice, and it makes a ton of sense. And, and that I think FDA really wants to be a partner, not the boogeyman. Uh, what would you uh, wish someone told you, you know, uh, 10 years ago when you're building some of your first companies? A lot of founders in particular are extremely reactive to problems. And if you're the founder of the company, you have to be the one in control and you have to be the one who's proactively focused on what's important and not just what feels urgent. So being proactive versus reactive makes a lot of sense, and especially in hindsight. But how do you how do you get to the point where you're actually doing that? Because usually people, reason why people are reactive is like, there's this fire burning and that fire burning and this employee unhappy or whatever. I think some of it is just experience, but I would say that there's some base understanding that you have to realize that, uh, as the Buddhists would say, life is suffering. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're going to experience pain. And I think that's probably why a lot of people don't do it, right? I mean, we, we are, as creatures, uh, pain averse, right? I mean, we will go away from pain, away from discomfort, totally. Uh, in part, that's part of the reason why we have metabolic disorders in the first place. But For sure. <laughs> how do you know whether you should be the CEO versus someone else should be the CEO? How do you decide that? I think it's really a question of skills matching. The common understanding of what a CEO should do or be good at is people, money, strategy. Yeah. That's what yeah. most people tend to align on. I, I would also argue that if 
if you have the right people, the strategy largely solves itself. And if you have the right people and your strategy is going well, the money usually takes care of itself. (laughs) So in many ways, the role is is ultimately just having your job is to put the right people in the right positions. Yeah, that makes sense. There is this trend that I'm seeing more and more people that were tech founders, uh, especially previous tech founders come into healthcare and want to build companies at this intersection of tech and health. What do you wish you knew in, in this basket or what advice would you have for others? One of the things that's different than any experience I'd had before was how extremely large and diverse the market is. Mm-hmm. When we did our first user segmentation, we ended up with dozens of extremely different personas with extremely different jobs to be done. Like a 50-year-old woman going through perimenopause is not going to have the same jobs to be done as uh, as a 26-year-old biohacker looking to do a triathlon. But you get all of those and more in healthcare. You have so many different people with different needs. That was definitely one that was that was a surprise. Because when you're building, I don't know, a SaaS tool for software developers, your persona is like that person. You've got the one person that you need to sell to and find in every company. And most companies have just a handful of key people or personas. And in healthcare, it is an extremely large market, but also very diverse in the way that you have to approach it. I would also say that almost every person recommended against going down the insurance path, yeah. uh, which we haven't done, but that was that was a common piece of advice that we got. And it's, it sounds like that's probably the right, the right idea to start in consumer. Yeah, I think for a consumer, that makes sense. It's just a different path, right? It's just right. A, a different path. Yeah, I, I'm actually not even sure it is a different path. I think that the if you want to be successful in insurance, you should probably still start in consumer. In, insurance companies don't, they have their own set of incentives and they don't necessarily care if you build a good product. If somebody's willing to pay you $500 for a product, that's a much stronger indication than if an insurance company gave it to them for free. I think the difference is like thinking about how payers work is just that they work in a very different way, right? Than consumers might. So I agree with you in terms of building the product it makes sense, but in terms of building the 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 channel, the revenue could be fairly different. Yeah, extremely different for sure. Okay, so I want to end with uh, some some tips that you might have, or just in a, for what you do for your personal health. Like, what do you do in, th- in terms of like workouts, supplements, all that stuff? Casey, Josh, and many others on the team are much more on the optimizer side of the spectrum. Yeah. I'm I'm looking for Pareto efficiency. Yeah, <laughs> so. I go on a lot of walks. I try to read at least two books a week, and they're mostly through audiobooks. So I do a lot of just long walks listening to audiobooks. Oh, yeah. So actually, I've seen you tweet a lot where you've showed the books you're reading, Ben. So those are often audio reading. Yeah, most of them are audiobooks. Yeah, that Um, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and those are great. You can just go on a nice walk. When looking at health outcomes, movement is really important. Yeah. And you can talk about whether it's zone two cardio or whatever the super optimizer thing is, but just moving a lot is really important. Um, I do push-ups. I do some pull-ups. I do mostly body weight exercises beyond that. I, I try to avoid sugar. It's not yeah. shocking. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think you, you've probably learned a bit too much about sugar. It sounds For like. sure. Yeah. Um, in terms of supplements, I, I regularly supplement protein. So what does that mean? A protein shake or what does that mean? I'll do the the Costco mixed berries that are frozen. 
with some uh, scoop of the the equipped chocolate protein uh, with just some whole milk. That's a, another, you know, 20, 30 grams of protein. I discovered maybe six months ago that I was eating a lot less protein than I thought I was. I thought I was getting about 100 grams of protein. I was getting more like 40. hundred is pretty hard, I think. Yeah, yeah. it is. Uh, the only other supplement that I would say I regularly use is creatine. Uh, that's another good supplement. Yeah, yeah actually, that's on, that's on my list too. Yeah. No. Yeah. Good. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us on BioEats World. Happy to be here. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.